and welcome back to the 31 Nights of Halloween Part 2. We've got 16 films to talk to you about, so we're going to jump right into it. Oh, no, we're not. Actually, there is one quick thing I wanted to mention. There is. Uh, <laughs> there is one quick thing I wanted to mention because it just came out today. Uh, the June Monster Bash dates have been announced June 24th and t- through the 26th. Hotels are filling up quick. So if anybody listening wants to go to the June Monster Bash, I have a feeling it's going to be a big one. Uh, you might want to uh, jump on it and and, and get some rooms. I, the Definitely the convention hotel is probably, by the time you hear this, is going to be booked. But there are a couple hotels uh, close by that you can try to get in on. And until December 30th, you can get discount tickets, uh, VIP passes. They're going to be about $15 less if you buy them before December 30th. So that's all I wanted to mention before we get into the films, just because that was just uh, posted today of recording. So I wanted to get it out there. Totally relatable to all the Halloween fun. Exactly. All right. So we have got some, we had a lot of fun talking about the first 15 films. Whew, this has been a, a marathon. We'll get into this. Hey, we do this for you people. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, I know the title alone made you excited for the first film of the second half. So do you want to kick things off? I will kick things off, yes. Uh, an amazing title. We watched Satan's School for Girls from 1973. And the excitement ended there. this is another kate jackson special uh 31 days of kate jackson oh wait no that's not quite right but (laughs) but it felt that way a couple times there were a few yeah we we were on quite the kate jackson role and i think this one kind of wrapped up that role for us but uh uh so we got most of them in on the first 15 but this one um this one features kate jackson in a role that was bewildering to me because she didn't seem quite the high schooler. Yeah, I couldn't quite tell if it was supposed to be a high school or like a college finishing school. Yeah, yeah. When you get into those all uh, those all girl private schools, um, especially around this period of time, it's kind of hard to say what it, exactly it was intended to be. I mean, because everyone was driving and stuff, I thought, weren't they? They were, uh, or at least a, a good hunk of them had cars. But hey, we did too in high school, so. Oh, yeah, good point. Hard, hard to say, but uh, I'm thinking back to a friend of ours who did uh, Oldenburg Academy, and I know they had, their the girls had their cars out there for, uh, even though it was a boarding school, so. Um, at any rate, yeah, it wasn't. It was a little undefined uh, how old the the girls were supposed to be. I thought the plot was a little undefined. Um, <laughs> to be honest, was was there? This is again one of our Nancy Drew special ones. Uh, girl goes attends school where her far, former sister had attended, and she's mostly there to kind of figure out what happened to her. Um, and then walks herself into a den of evil. Roy Thinnis uh, yep. appears in this one again, too. And it just, there's a whole lot of mystery. What happened? What happened? And then in the end, it's kind of like someone just came into the, the meeting or in the middle of filming or something and said, hey, why don't we have this guy be Satan? And he's going to, he's got a, all these girls are going to be his followers. And 
what was it, 12 of, 12 of my girls died here, and now I'm taking it back. Like, when? What? How? Why? <laughs> what? Where did that come from? Uh, what? Yeah, yeah, it was just completely... It was off the rails, but hey, we got Cheryl Ladd before she was before also... Before she was Cheryl Ladd, yes. Yeah, we got Cheryl Ladd before she was an angel, right there with Kate Jackson, so... He had two of the three right there. I actually was kind of taken with uh, Pamela Franklin, our star. Yeah. I don't know. I, I thought she. I thought she was really cute. I liked her little pixie haircut. <laughs> <laughs> she was actually distracting me from Kate Jackson. Well, well, s- silver linings. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a this was a bizarre one. This one just kind of seemed, as you put it, I think off the rails is. Uh, yeah, there's just it. It felt like everyone went into this without a script and they were just making it up on the spot almost like we went to a girls school filmed as much of it as we could with a few of our stars and then oh let's throw a satanic plot in right at the end all right so that's a we'll call that one a skippable i think right yeah i'm pretty sure yeah all right so let's move on we will move on to a 1982 film called don't go to sleep this one stars Valerie Harper, a Dennis, and Dennis Weaver as a couple that move into a new home, uh, along with, uh, I guess it was, well, I don't know, one of their mother, <laughs> and a couple of young girls. They're all getting over the death of the uh, what I assumed was like the eldest daughter who died yes. in a very uh, freak automobile accident about a year prior. Probably related and, to uh, dad's drinking. Oh, yes, and that... Uh, pretty much means I, I believe that the mother was Valerie Harper. I think that was the mom's yes. uh, mom. Yeah. Because she was definitely giving Dennis Weaver a lot of grief on the uh, the drinking. Uh, and they were given, and he was giving her a bit of grief on the whole one more for the road. I remember that line from the movie because uh, um, anytime she wanted to give him grief, um, he gave it right back going, you're the one that was serving me. Yes, yeah. There was a lot of deep-seated, like, you, you could feel the tension in, like, everything that was underlying this family. Uh, things weren't being said, but were definitely being felt. Definitely. And it's interesting. Uh, I, I know the movie stars Dennis Weaver and Valerie Harper, but this movie really starred the two girls. Robin Ignico? Ignico, Ignico right, and yes. And Kristen Cumming. Right. Uh, Robin plays the uh, the surviving daughter. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she could, she had that face that she could be cute as a button one second and with just the slightest change in her expression, super creepy evil girl. Yes. I mean, like on a dime. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, and Kristen coming as the, as the ghost of the dead daughter and, and- the daughter when in the flashback sequences, um, mm-hmm. she just has this crazy, terrifying Cheshire cat smile that yes, she does. That she would do, but I mean, the the play between the two of them as the ghost is haunting her sister, um, and slowly driving her mad was mm-hmm. just amazing. I mean. I actually really liked this one a lot. 
This one went places I would have never expected. It was a lot darker than I would have ever expected. Oh, yeah. You could question whether there was a haunting going on you could. almost until the very end. This could just be the middle daughter going insane, and she's the one responsible, and it's all in her head. Right. And and then and, and her actions are all her own. Uh, it's not until literally the end of the film does it answer the question of whether or not there's truly something ghostly yes. going on. And I that was very cool. But no, every all the steps, I don't want to... Gosh, I don't know. I guess we've kind of spoiled a lot of things already, but I, I, yeah, you I feel know, like this is one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all all the deaths are very surprising. You kept waiting for that person to just almost die. And, you know, it, it takes that next step. It crosses the line. You're like, holy crap. <laughs> I, I'm always a fan of clever editing, a little synchronicity uh in the editing because the the sequence where the little boy is on the roof mm, mm-hmm. and he gets shoved off the roof oh, yes and oh, we not so we, subtle we, <laughs> we 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 snap away from seeing him actually fall to a watermelon hitting the floor and cracking yes. open yeah valerie harper dropping the watermelon on the kitchen floor i'm like wow subtle <laughs> but perfect yeah <laughs> like that i'm like oh my god especially this is a made for tv movie you can't show the mm-hmm. actual violence not the way that a true horror movie might actually give into it um so that that whole implied violence that uh, we were saying this kid's head just cracked open. <laughs> right. And that was yes. awesome. I'm like, this was a nice little sleeper. I wasn't expecting a whole lot from this. Terrible title. Terrible. I don't understand the don't go to sleep. No, but you know what? That's kind of the trend for all of these is uh, <laughs> their titles are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so some kind of fit others are completely off the mark so great movie bad title right yeah this was this is definitely one that i would recommend mm-hmm. uh, people go and watch yeah uh, and we uh, can't, can't possibly have uh, spoiled this you you have to watch it the the creep factor that we can't get across in our own conversation here yep exactly so yeah check this one out don't go to sleep from 1982 mm. So moving on to our next film, we have, speaking of terrible titles, um, we have Summer of Fear from uh, 1978. This is a Linda Blair movie. Linda Blair in Summer of Fear. A terrifying journey into witchcraft and the occult. The summer began like any other until the arrival of Julia. Rachel, you remember Julia? Hi, Julia. Julia is a witch. She is some kind of a witch. Was it jealousy or was there more? Bill, out of your head. You're not my cousin, Julia. Who are you? Using a wax figure, can one person control another person's mind? Alone, Rachel struggles to prove her nightmare a reality. 
A Summer of Fear. A frightening encounter with the supernatural. And actually, uh, a pretty solid entry into our uh, our 31 Nights of Halloween. Um, in, in this story, we get... Um, we get a death in the family. Uh, there's an accident, uh, and it involves the mother's sister and, and her her husband, and they are supposedly left a daughter behind. At least that's how the tale goes. And so they go and bring the daughter back, the cousin to Linda Blair and the uh, and her brothers brothers. Right, and we should uh, mention that. The family has been separated for years. No one's seen right. this cousin or for, uh, for for like a decade or more. Right. And not since she was like five years old or something like that. Right. So the fact that she is now like 17, 18 years old, um, she or 16 maybe, it was hard to gauge how old the teenagers were, but... Uh, but yeah, no, she's she's much older. They wouldn't have any clue that what she looked like between then and now. So yes, the days before social media and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and posting family pictures and stuff and email. Ah, uh, the days of '78. Um, yes, but in this case, uh, and they leaned heavily on they're from the Ozarks, the ever mysterious Ozarks. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, my favorite part of this film, as, as we unfold, uh, it ter- the uh, the mysterious cousin starts to take on um, the family by literally trying to insert herself into everything that they do. So she wants Linda Blair's life. Yeah, she uh, starts kind of killing them with kindness. <laughs> she starts out as a very shy and the, and the mousy, and then she slowly kind of. Um, yeah, and greens herself onto everyone except for Linda. Right, who she is almost using as, well, since this is a witch's tale of sorts, uh, she is essentially using her like an energy source. Everything she just sucks kind of out of Linda Blair's character. Um, and But my favorite part in this film, my favorite part is it's... It's the father of uh, Linda Blair's uh, boyfriend in there. At least I guess it's supposed to be his father. That's kind of how I took it. Maybe I read that wrong. But he happens to be a professor who knows about... (laughs) Right. He wasn't any any relation. He was just another character in the neighborhood. Okay. But the character in the neighborhood happens to be a studied expert... In, in the, the ways of mysticism and the Ozark. So, like, thank you, Professor Plotpoint. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Apparently, just, luckily, every neighborhood has the prof- has somebody, an expert in the occult. That's just that's that's just what happened in the seventies, Tom. Uh, 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 of course, uh, and thank you, Wes Craven. This is a Wes Craven film, um, but mm-hmm. that moment didn't seem quite his style. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little too on the nose in the moment. So um, at any rate, it was still a whole lot of fun, this particular film. Um, and I could, as I mentioned on social medias, um, Linda's Blair, Linda Blair's hair <laughs> should have been a character <laughs> unto itself. I didn't 
dislike this one. I thought it was fun. Yes. I thought after all the ones we've seen, I felt like it maybe felt a little mundane. And But that might be just because of all the films that we have watched recently <laughs> that kind of like, oh, we've kind of seen a little something like this before. Sure. Or a t- couple times, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I... <laughs> we we we've been talking about Nancy Drew stories. I, this one actually has almost a Scooby Doo ending, <laughs> and complete with the sheriff saying, "And she almost got away with it." <laughs> I just kept waiting. If it weren't for you kids and that horse, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it really had that. And on top of it, uh, we we can't we can't move on at all until we mention. This is a, there's a very young Fran Drescher in this movie as well. <laughs> Boy, you can't miss her. <laughs> she didn't do the laugh. <laughs> she didn't. Oh, she did. <laughs> not not like she became known for. It was a little more subtle. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it was definitely you can't miss her. No. There were lots of little things like that that were just kind of fun in there, but uh, that I I, I kind of enjoyed this one considering some of the ones that we've gone through. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it was it was well made, and there was actually good acting. Linda Blair, I think, is a, a little bit of an underrated actress. I think she is. Yes, I I thought she did a really nice job in this, and she kind of she carried the film. She did. She did a great job. I I enjoyed it. From there, we go to Moon of the Wolf. From 1972, and we finally get a werewolf. This one, I actually, um, I actually kind of really like this one. Uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, just the setting. They set it down in Louisiana Bayou, and so it's always hot. Everyone's always sweaty. Uh, it, it's all shot on location, and it just—I don't know—I just really like that setting. It's not the place that you would normally, I think connect with a werewolf tale. I grant you that, yeah. I think this one actually kind of harkens back to the original uh, Wolfman. It's a kind of a a murder mystery with some of the extraordinary circumstances, and the wolf is actually revealed kind of in stages until the, the kind of the final reveal. I mean, there's a lot similar uh, story elements to this, but told from different, from a different angle. Uh, in the original Wolfman, Lon Chaney is is the rich guy that comes to this small town. And the whole story is told through following him. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, a rich guy, you know, is in a small town, but the whole story is told from the townsfolk. Yeah. But the rich man is still the one that's causing all the trouble. You know, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the... Like, like the Wolfman and many of the the movies around that, I like the f- the family element. They they got away from the whole a wolf has bit someone or you've caught this some way. This is this is a thing that passes down through their family. Um, they actually they actually called it out lycanthropy um, mm-hmm. or lycanthropy. Let me say that lycanthropy. Correct. Lycanthropy. That's tough. <laughs> That's a little tough to say sometimes, um, but no, they 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 actually traced it down that this is something that was part of their family. So yes, he he was unfortunately condemned to be this character, whether this uh, creature, whether he actually wanted to be or not. 
the uh, the sheriff played by David Jansen, who I also really liked in this. I just I just thought he did a really great job. But he's investigating. He's asking Barbara Rush's character about the family and was there anyone you know any history of any mysterious illnesses or whatever and like oh like my 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 father or my i figured it was a father or grandfather or whatever would i remember people always say that he would had one of his episodes or something like that and he'd have to be you know away in his room and i thought oh i like that they're sort of they're, you know they people knew about it but they had to hide it because they are a well-to-do family mm-hmm. they couldn't have anything like this kind of uh marring the good name i'm like I like that. You don't want the townsfolk to hunt you down and murder you. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that too. <laughs> but no, yeah, it, it had those elements. And, and it, the thing about him as the sheriff, um, David Jansen, um, mm-hmm. he was that consummate uh, small town sheriff. Basically, he's the guy in charge of pretty much anything. So... <laughs> You kind of do as he says. Nope, I enjoyed it. I, I, I like that one. Maybe we should move on to one not so good. <laughs> <laughs> so for our next film, night 20 of our 31 nights, uh, we have The Screaming Woman from 1972. More like The Moaning Woman. Um, yes. Uh, as we debated a little online about this one... Um, I come at this from the perspective of this was supposed to be a thriller from the perspective of you have an older, well-to-do woman who is probably in the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, her family and um, the, the town that knows her um, already are starting to know that she doesn't remember things the way that most people do. But she's come across this buried alive woman. She knows there's a woman buried alive out in this field on their property. And yet she can't convince anybody of the fact that this woman is there. So I take it more from the perspective of the you're supposed to put yourself in the in the shoes of this woman who is absolutely frustrated by the fact that she's too old to do anything about it, but also because of her condition isn't believed by anyone. So can she manage to save the day for this particular woman um, as the events unfold? Unfortunately, it's just crap. (laughs) I think the real mistake here is not letting the audience wonder whether Olivia de Havilland was, as you said, suffering from some sort of mental ailment. Mm -hmm. Was she insane? Was she hearing things? Uh, Make it a surprise for the audience in the end. It was a bad call, I think, because I don't want to watch this woman just going around and being frustrated because it just frustrates me. (laughs) No, I didn't say that this was good. (laughs) Uh, 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 Giving the perspective of, I think that's what they were going for and didn't pull it off very well. And it's a shame because there's so much that went into this film that you think, okay, we got Olivia de Havilland. It's based on a short story by Ray Bradbury. The score was written by John Williams. I mean, there's a lot of like big and big names that go into this film, and 
Uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, because uh, part of the subplot that we had is the 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 husband of the woman that is apparently buried alive um, is trying to move on to a life with his lover. It begs the question: Why didn't you just kill her? Well, apparently he thought he did. So he's that inept that he can't tell whether or not the wife he beamed in the head with a fireplace poker or whatever it was, was still alive. Yeah, no, uh, like, and I believe I said that, yeah, we have an inept killer, or would-be killer in this case. Um, Yeah, no, you're on to something with the whole, we need to find a way to let the audience discover as the people discover that she is correct, that she's not insane. Being, yeah. I, I don't know, I, I've i never read this, I did not read the no. short story. I have not read the short story by Radbury. Knowing Ray Bradbury, I was expecting sort of a, they finally get the woman committed, and then you know, they sell the property, and when they come in to start developing the land, they find a body <laughs> or something, and everyone goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that 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 would have worked, <laughs> something <laughs> along those lines. But yeah, that's not what this did. And, and the, the title again, the title, the screaming woman. Uh, right. Well, Olivia de Havilland maybe was the screaming woman. I, she was going around screaming for everyone to listen to her. Well, right, and she did scream when she first found the woman, and screamed again when she found her again. Yeah. I mean, at this point, um. I, I realize the woman in the ground is not in great shape, but uh, but you'd think maybe she'd get a little something more out of her than a moan. Yes. Well, I did appreciate how feisty Olivia de Havilland's character was. I like to think that that was the way Olivia de Havilland really was in real life, because we only just lost her last year at the age of 104. So I, I think Miss de Havilland... What had plenty of spunk in her, so I'd like to think that this is really the kind of woman she was. She would not have given up either. No. <laughs> From that one, we go in a very different direction. We look at 1977's Curse of the Black Widow. This one uh, was directed by Dan Curtis, and, and Dan Curtis's the, the typical Dan Curtis detective is played by Anthony Fran- Franciosa. This one also includes Donna Mills and Patty Duke, and uh, Vic Morrow shows up in this as well. Sid Caesar, Sid Caesar's in and this. Sid Caesar also appears. Yes. As much as I like the idea of a were spider, <laughs> I would have liked this film a lot more had it starred almost anyone other than Tony Franciosa. <laughs> that guy was the most frustratingly annoying character. He must have like been an overachiever in acting school when they did the course on blocking because the man never stopped fidgeting with something. He was chewing gum. He was playing with his keys. He, oh, my God. When he went into the one guy's office and threw his foot up onto the desk so he could lean against his knee, I was like, what the hell is he doing? Oh, and... The word that I used online was smarmy. Uh, yeah. This this character oozed just, um, my shit don't stink, man. And 
And, and I, I, I'm the coolest cat that was ever on, on the planet. I like, oh my God. Um, from him flirting with the hookers on the street to, to, to how he handles the, the woman that is actually doing the slew thing. Right, his secretary. <laughs> his secretary yeah. who, um, yeah, uh, Flaps, I believe <laughs> was her name. <laughs> Um, or at least her nickname yeah yeah uh yeah she's doing all the work and he's just busy making time with the ladies (laughs) (laughs) the plot of this thing there's a mysterious death going around and it appears that these people are being attacked by what everything everything starts to the point a giant spider and of course it it the investigation keeps leading him to this dark-haired, mysterious dark-haired woman. And yes, sure enough, this woman at some full moons will turn into a giant black widow spider and uh, kill a mate, I guess. <laughs> or at least kill somebody. <laughs> they, I think they even actually found a couple wrapped up in web. Well, they stuck a little bit of a vampire kind of thing in there, too, because she drains them of their bodily fluids. Right. Well, that's what spots how spiders eat. Sure. Interesting premise. Just uh, and being directed by Dan Curtis and everything. I this should have been like a Kolchak movie. <laughs> yeah. And and and, I, and when I say that, I really wish it had been a Kolchak movie because I could have seen Kolchak in this and would have enjoyed it over. Take Higby out of there. Higby, yeah. <laughs> I, it took me a while there for them for me to understand that his secretary wasn't calling him a hippie. <laughs> Especially since there was this whole thing between um, Sid Caesar's character, who is playing basically a a, a, a skeezy lawyer that likes they that, that gets uh, um, hookers off for for uh, working. Um, there's a there's a battle over the thermostat that just keeps coming up, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so I thought he kept she kept calling him hippie because because he he had to have it lower or something. I don't know. Anyway, mm. this was I, I I had to be truly appreciate that uh, he went out and bought um, a prop spider uh, <laughs> toward the end of the film. That ended up being identical to the large spider that <laughs> they actually used for the giant spider attacking. Yeah, uh, we finally do get kind of the payoff at the end, and we do see the giant spider, and it is wisely not shown a lot and in darkness, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or or on fire. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not the greatest effect, but. <laughs> And uh, more disturbingly is that the film ends with a hint of a potential sequel. <laughs> or the story continues at the very least. Yes, uh, you have not eliminated the were-spider. From the curse of uh, the Black Widow, we move on to our our next great sea adventure. Night 22 is Cruise Into Terror from 1978. I, this is just this is just tons of fun. I'm just gonna, I can't I, I can't say enough about this. It is the dumbest thing ever, but it is just so 
so much fun. We have we have our cruise ship captain. Um, his his vessel in particular is not doing particularly well. He has to he he needs parts. Um, he he's talking with a. I, I want to know the company because they're just meeting in a warehouse, <laughs> and, and, and and the boss, quote unquote, is just uh, telling him, "No, you have to take the boat out again," um, because apparently something big is happening here. Some they're they're part of a cruise line, but the major boat overbooked and so they got like a half a dozen passengers that just need a ride to this this island and then they'll be they'll pick up some other ship and so this captain's boat is i take it more for shorter leisure cruises or something like that it, it is not a fancy ship it's like a serp it's like an ex-world war ii you know troop carrier that's been uh refurbished to be some sort of uh, pleasure craft kind of thing. Yeah, it's got cabins. It's uh, it, it, right. It, it it it's got dining. It, it just doesn't have a whole lot of amenities. It's not super. Right. Easy. There's no no shuffleboard or, or pool or anything like that. There's it, no Lido deck. <laughs> it is not Death Cruise. No, no, it is not Death Cruise. But there is more death. <laughs> <laughs> In this cruise than anything, and it and it stars Dirk Benedict, sort of, <laughs> sort of, as the world's cleanest en- ship engineer. The thing I'm marveling at most is uh, he, he's uh, on IMDb here. He's actually li- listed as the lead character mm. <laughs> in the starring role. Um, but no, you get like John Forsyth as the Reverend. Yeah. Uh, no, you had some bigger names in here. Wasn't this another uh, Ray Milland? Uh, yeah. It? Yeah, he yeah. was in here as well. We've we've seen him also. We've seen him at least as much as Kate Jackson. I think this month. <laughs> well, comes with the Dan Curtis territory, but this one is Bruce Kessler is our director for this film. But I mean, the premise here is uh, the the these. These wayward passengers are, uh, have to take this cruise ship uh, to get to their island, and it turns out that they will be crossing over um, a, a spot where there may have been a tomb um, for a what turns out to be essentially a, a, an Antichrist-style character. Well, what I think uh, what you haven't mentioned is that this whole thing starts out with uh, the professor, played by Ray Milland here, is an Egyptologist mm-hmm. who has a theory that Egyptians sailed to South America at some point. And he's on his way to South America to look for this tomb. And it's one of the other, uh, oh, what was he? He was a mathematician or someone like that who, who realizes that, oh, no, you know, all the stars and all, the, all your measurements are off because, you know, things shift over all these centuries. And it would be in the middle of the ocean now. It must have been an island there. So we got Egyptian mythology. And then, as it turns out, it gets mixed up with Christian mythology because, yeah, apparently the Egyptians had the Antichrist and they put him in a sarcophagus. It's a baby. Baby-sized sarcophagus is found in this rubble under the boat. Hey, uh, <laughs> a breathing. 
baby yeah, size. and it breathes. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I kind of I kind of dug that effect that uh, that it, it wasn't added bad. To the creepy factor, but um, I uh, I don't know if you caught it, but our, our our mathematician, our professor, is actually Doctor Lazarus. <laughs> oh, I did. I missed that name. Oh, that was nice. I like that. That's a that that's a nice touch. But uh, yeah, no, th- this had everything though. It had pretty girls in bikinis. Um, it had, it had, I have no idea why, uh, the passengers swimming off ship just out in the middle of the ocean. There was a line about the, the, the guys were, the passengers were wondering if they could go swimming. Are we going to make our usual stop at the reef? Ah, okay. Yes. So there you go. Yeah. You mentioned the girls in the bikini. I did like the moment the the girls come up to the captain. They're in their bikinis. Where's the best place to sunbathe? Right out there on the bow. Like, yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> you know, where I can watch. Yeah, where I can see you. Because <laughs> the bridge is just like five feet away. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no. Uh, and yes, we can't say it enough. Dirk Benedict in this, he's supposed to be the ship's engineer. He's the guy getting it done, getting this thing repaired because it's breaking down. It was breaking down before it had a supernatural presence on board trying to make it break down. So, but he always comes out in the cleanest, whitest shirt ever. (laughs) Yeah, nope. White pants. I think it was a blue, like light blue shirt, white pants, no grease or oil on his hands or face at any point. Like, wow, you... You're good. <laughs> he apparently showers. <laughs> There's a shower right outside the engine room, that he, and he changes <laughs> before coming out on deck. That's that's very nice of him. You get that climactic scene at the end where all hell's breaking loose and inside the cabin uh, as they have to. There's a whole tale about the the fact that the what is it there there There's twelve. Is it is something like there's. 12 souls on board and one mm-hmm. watcher over the child and they're like wait there's 13 of us yes one of you doesn't have a soul right <laughs> like well that's not ominous at all no not at all no it is a uh, yeah it is it is batshit crazy is pretty much how i would explain it <laughs> it is it's something to behold it is but uh, i mean for made for tv terror this is not bad <laughs> it's it's popcorn theater. Well, speaking of batshit crazy, <laughs> let us jump to 1978's Doctor Strange. My, how far Marvel movies have come. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I said the MCU, this ain't. <laughs> Yo, this was apparently actually a potential, a pilot for a potential yeah. series. Uh, Stan Lee was heavily involved in the uh, the creation of this thing and was rather disappointed that it didn't do as well as they had hoped. Uh, it stars Peter Hooten as a Doctor Strange. And this version, he's a psychiatrist and not a neurosurgeon or anything like that that we are familiar with. He's been followed, I guess, through his life by a... Uh, their version of um oh the ancient one the ancient one yes uh, now this one is not the ancient one no <laughs> there's some past with his father because his father gave him a ring that has the the, the symbol of light on it mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, and he discovers he's going to, you know, he's got a destiny. Morgan Le Fay is, is sent forth by some uber demon to try to uh, stop this transfer of power from this old wizard to the new wizard. Yeah. This is a, this is a costume party. <laughs> it is, uh, but it, I mean, it had Jessica Walter as Morgan Le Fay, and I, I have a soft spot for Jessica Walter. <laughs> okay. I, I wasn't familiar with her. Um, I, I'm familiar with her from more of her current work up until she recently passed away. Um, mm. She she has played the mother uh, of the character Archer in the Archer series. Gotcha. She was also the the mother character in uh, Arrested Development. Oh, okay. Yes. So she has a style about her, and this was this was. She clearly grew into the style that she would play. Um, this was not that, but it was nice to see her earlier in her career. Um, I just think it's funny anytime um, somebody wants to tell a magic style story, uh, Morgan Le Fay gets pulled out <laughs> at, at almost <laughs> any any turn, and especially if you need a female baddie. So never hurts to go back to the Arthurian legends for right. for your bad guys. There was a demon in it, though. <laughs> there was a demon. Yeah, absolutely. No, it definitely felt like... The, well, the problem is it felt like it was a pilot, yeah. but it felt like a pilot for a series that they knew was going to be produced because there was so much setup, and you get actual, like, two minutes of actual, like, Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange at the end. Right. And then it's over. And so it's like, well, I want more wizard stuff. <laughs> First off, their costumes were terrible. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, the the there's nothing, uh, there was nothing good about the way the Doctor Strange character looked when he finally got his robes or whatever. Um, but I mean, even the the, the sequences—it's it, it, just the lightning bolt exchanges that don't seem to be doing anything. It's just a matter of who do we want to win this time. Sometimes it's Morgan Le Fay's lightning bolt that takes out the uh, the older guy, but now it's Doctor Strange's lightning bolt that <laughs> that will do the job. It, it just seemed really lazy curious to watch this one again because i yeah. i had watched it ages ago oh yeah uh long before there was a, a marvel cinematic universe and i was curious to see well if it was as silly <laughs> as i remembered it being <laughs> and it is absolutely uh it's no sillier than i suppose than the amazing spider-man series yeah and honestly it's not that much different from the incredible hulk i mean if they had thrown in a you know a, a sad piano solo at the end maybe they could have uh gone to series i don't know yeah maybe that was the the missing link uh no we were actually discussing um at work today uh some of these older ones because i had mentioned this particular movie uh but i mean there was the captain america series where Cap was like some beach bum dude that rode motorcycles and had a, a spangly motorcycle helmet. Um, 
there was a crossover episode of Incredible Hulk where Thor showed up. <laughs> and right. There was nothing great about any of this stuff at the time it came out because they just did, they didn't have it in them to do it justice, and they felt too much like taking the characters that were written in the comic books and somehow inserting them into 1970s lifestyles. Yeah, leaving this one behind. As as we should. As you all should. Um, then we get... We go in a completely different direction. Um, this was a big shift <laughs> from everything we'd watched prior. Big shift, and this is the one where we'll at least uh, caveat. This is not really a horror movie. Um I mean, there is terror in it, but there's not. This is not a horror movie. Uh, this is our night twenty-four. The movie "Are You in the House Alone?" nineteen seventy-eight. Um, this one's kind of a hard watch, uh, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, yes, I, I I made the flip comment because, and I stick to it. It's a bit after-school special, like. But this is the story of a young woman who is raped by someone who is supposed to be a friend of hers. And we start the movie with the immediate aftermath of the rape and then spend the rest of the movie in backstory building up to that night and then what happens after. Uh, so you get the, you they want you to get the sense that this is a normal girl with a normal family, with normal problems, living in her normal high school life, um, with her normal friends and her normal boyfriend, and then ends up getting taken advantage of by the creepy stalker boyfriend of her best friend, um, who decides to take it upon himself to terrorize her prior to um, actually showing up at her house and raping her. That's the terror element in this one. And then you we deal with the aftermath of that. And this is the part that I know uh, hit you pretty pretty hard from the perspective of this is still a problem to this day. The, the, the kid's got money. He's from a family with money. And they can easily make all of it go away. No one believes the girl. Yeah, it really bothers me that 43 years ago, filmmakers... A writer, a director, a producer, stars of the film all went into this. And some of them probably thought we can be a voice that can bring about change. 43 years ago. Mm-hmm. And nothing's changed. Right. And I find that, you say it's not a horror, but I find that incredibly horrific. Yes, it, it, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not uh, trying to mince words on that at all. Uh, it is horrific that that is still the case. Um, interesting too that this is a. This is like one of Dennis Quaid's first movies. And, yeah, and he plays the the attacker. The reason I call it like the after school special is it does kind of come off very. Everything's very wholesome, and then they make their point. It's it's filmed that way. It it's filmed a lot like you remember the after school specials being. Yes. I will. I'll give you that. 
Yes, but I can't belittle the 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 point that they they very effectively made. It, and, and even though the character in the end, the attacker, um, he still doesn't actually meet with any decent consequences for his actions. Um, right. It requires getting caught catching him red-handed for anyone to believe that he actually had done anything at all. Mm-hmm. So, yes, to that point, there's <laughs> it's terrifying, but yeah. This isn't necessarily a Halloween film. I think it's actually a film worth watching. For God's sakes, don't watch it the way that I ended up watching. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was tortured by ads, but uh, oh yeah, and I'm really sorry for that experience. I did not share your experience. I had no ads through the entire film. No, and they, it was one of those deals where it picked up pace. The deeper I got into the film, the more oh. uh, the more quickly the ads started coming. By the time I got into the last twenty minutes, it was every five minutes. Ouch. Yeah, no, and, and given the topic of this movie and how it's drawing out like a slow blade, anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. That was not helpful. <laughs> so no, uh, no, it is not a Halloween movie. It is not a. Um, there are. I mean, it is frightening. It is suspenseful at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very difficult watch, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but it's incredibly well acted. Yes, um, I think it's very well directed. It's it it's a really good movie. I just I just like I. I was saying before the subject matter, it just bothers me that it just goes to show this is, this is proof that, you know, we have not come very far and that's really sad. One critique of the film is, uh, if they wanted it to have the punch that it had, I, I'd have taken out the fact that, uh, they started with the rape. Hmm. Like, they started with taking her to the hospital. Yeah, that really, that's what really made this film hard to watch. Because, like you said, I mean, we know what's going to happen. And so we just have to sit there and wait and watch this person go through and, you know, find happiness. And you're thinking, oh, God, you poor woman, because I know what's going to happen. Uh, it, that's It's terrible. It, it is, and as quickly... It, oh, if you wanted the gut punch, I wouldn't have put it at the beginning. But considering the point that they they were making, upon further reflection, if you put it out there at the beginning, they wanted to drive home, I think, with the, the telling up to that point, that this girl didn't do anything. Like... Right. Like, she lived the normal, suburban, white upbringing. Right, yeah, exactly. They didn't give her any of the excuses that the the rapists often try to use. Oh, well, look how she was, what was... Look at what she said, or or see what she said, and look what she was wearing. Yes. Um, They eliminate all of that. Yes, and they, they, they... Give you a few moments where maybe you might think it's one character rather than another prior to the actual rape scene. I will say this. The the one thing has changed. The high school photography teacher 
would have been fired like on his first day. That guy was the most inappropriate. He was an inter- inappropriate human being. <laughs> yes, he was. Oh my god! Much he... less, and, and he had absolutely no business teaching in a high school. No, he, I, I... that was creepy. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was creepy without having been the guy that committed the rape. Um, right. Up to that point, you, I'd have laid even money that he was the one that did the rape. It was almost too spot on. I mean, it would have been too obvious if it was him. It, it would have, but given the time period that we're talking about, uh, I could have seen them trying to drive the point home of watch your authority figures as well. Right. Well, I, I think that message is still in this one, even though he's he's not guilty <laughs> yeah. of, of of that particular crime. I think that message is still loud and clear in this because the it might not be a horror film, but there was plenty of creeping flesh on the- <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, a- after some of the silliness, some of the cheesiness, some of the decent actual scares that we got out of some of the previous movies... This one sat weird. And aside from my experience, it just, like, that wasn't what I was expecting. Well, fortunately, we get to go in a completely different direction again. We get to leave the, the really heavy stuff behind. Yes. Because we looked at 1976's The Savage Bees. This one might be a little more of a Halloween film. Because yes. at least it's got some uh, it's got some creepy crawlies coming after you. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a B film. It's a B movie, uh, <laughs> and it's much more like the what we were expecting when we were looking at the um, the first Kate Jackson film we covered the uh, last episode, which I already forgot the title of. That's how many films we've we've sat through and watched. Oh God! It, wow, it was like way early on. Killer Bees from nineteen seventy four. Don't confuse your bee movies, folks. No, the killer bees, we've gone from the killer bees to the savage bees. Some kind of bugs killed Seth. Bees. It's a stinger. What makes you think there's something special about this one? Scores of Brazilians were killed when they were attacked by swarms of the so-called Africanized bees. The Africanized bees attack when annoyed by color or sound. That's the eeriest, most frightening thing I ever heard. said not to let anybody in there. He's going inside now. Close your doors and windows. I thought this one was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. Again, it's a savage killer bee movie. Um, no, it was it was fun. This is, but this was the one we were expecting. Like the Kate Jackson one, 
took the concept of what you thought you were going to get with a Killer Bee movie and turned it on its ear and made it uh, made it about the family, made it about a human being being the queen bee. Um, this is just straight up, we got killing bees. <laughs> yes. I was really expecting this one to be really corny. And I thought, it. well, it, I didn't think it was. I thought, no. wow, this one is actually done... Um, it's not near as cheesy as I was expecting to do. And there was actually like a real sense of urgency. I mean, people were, the actors were kind of like taking it seriously and it carried over. And it's like, it was actually good. <laughs> right down to confronting Roscoe P. Coltrane. In the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a, as a uh, I think he was, he was a, town uh, the gov the mayor or yeah, something I, I believe yeah he he was because they were in louisiana mm-hmm. um yeah and he he was, he was I, in new orleans new i mean orleans. it was uh it was mardi gras season yeah so that was the impending fear in this um is that the this swarm could wipe out all of the mardi gras um but uh interestingly enough not a, bit, a huge body count in this film no no when they started talking about the swarm and Mardi Gras, I thought that was going to be kind of like the climax of our film or, or a portion of it was to have these bees actually attacking Mardi Gras uh, attendees. And I actually really appreciate it. I think that's really what makes this film work is that they kept it small. Mm-hmm. They didn't go too big because you would have had to have had the black animated dots over the screen or something like that. Right. Um, this one, I don't think they did any of that. The bees were bees. They had the legit bee wrangler and, you know, several thousand bees that they had crawling all over people and, and flying around. And so that made it very creepy and very real. <laughs> yes, it did, but... We, we got to talk about the solution to the problem. <laughs> well, before we even get to the solution... Please. That's the one bit that, this, that kept kind of throwing me off a little bit in this film, and we'll talk about a little bit in the next film, too, is the idea that apparently automobiles are airtight. <laughs> yeah, they are. I, I, I had no idea. I had no idea how often I was... Uh, risking my life by not running the fan <laughs> in my car uh yeah to- um yeah you're, you're you're in constant death trap at all times uh, apparently uh and, and apparently uh probably safe to operate underwater because they are that airtight apparently um, exactly but yes the the solution yes the solution so, so these Africanized bees, and they did get, they got a little in depth between Africanized bees versus Italian bees. Mm-hmm. That the are Italians similar. are the good bees. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as they were exploring this, apparently the Africanized bees will, uh, they're agitated by sound and noise and color, uh, apparently mm-hmm. red in particular. Um, Red and black, they uh, they explain. Red and blacks kind of set them off. Yeah. Um, so our heroine, uh, Jean- Jeannie Devereaux, uh, 
she sees people in trouble and makes a bunch of racket while sitting in <laughs> in a VW bug. Mm-hmm. And this begins to attract all of the bees until all of them are now essentially swarmed and sitting on the VW bug. Yeah, completely covered. Completely covered. She can barely see anything. Um, and this is where air, you get to learn that a VW bug is airtight. <laughs> not a single bee squeezed in through any vent of any kind. Well, and she actually began to start to, towards the end of the, the thing, she starts passing out from lack of oxygen. Yes, she's suffocating in there from the heat and and the lack of air, yes. Um, but apparently the, uh, what is it, uh, the key temperature is to get uh, these bees to 45 degrees. If, yes, then they go dormant. Then they go dormant, so... They need to get these bees into it. And you can't just go straight into cold because they'll they, they'll know they'll fly they'll away. Leave. Yeah. Um, so you have to gradually take them into 45 degrees, which means we're going to drive them across town to um, the stadium. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where her hero ex-boyfriend guy has to get involved because the VW bug breaks down, as VW bugs do. Yes, um, and especially has, when the engine gets infested with bees. Yes, so he has to push the car, the last leg of the trip into the uh, into the domed thing. I I didn't know that you could get that stadium down to forty five degrees. I I like that though the bees will go dormant at, uh, under 45 degrees. Well, apparently it literally at 45 degrees they just they just collapse. They collapse, <laughs> they drop. <laughs> and, and apparently uh cop cars of the day are not as airtight as VW bugs. No, because they got in on him, didn't they? They did right there at the end and fortunately they hit that 45 degree mark. Just, just in time. Just in time to save his life. That was amazing. I, yeah. I mean, I wept. It was beautiful. <laughs> there was definitely some um, contrived moments, I'm not going to lie. A little bit. The the star of the film, um, Gretchen Corbett, I liked seeing her because she was one of my favorite uh, reoccurring guest stars on The Rockford Files. Yes. <laughs> she played Jim Rockford's uh, usually frustrated attorney. <laughs> Yeah, no, I saw that you made that comment. So, and I was th- thrilled to have Roscoe P. Coltrane uh, try, <laughs> trying up. to trying to take them through the uh, the 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 red tape of trying to stop a a bee swarm in the state of Louisiana. <laughs> I like this one. I I actually really enjoyed it. Um, it is a, maybe a little corny. It has its moments, but no, I thought it was done pretty well i thought it was taken pretty seriously and uh i enjoyed it i think with that we should segue into the uh darker side of of this film it actually got a sequel (laughs) yeah and as much as i enjoyed uh, the first one i disliked the sequel (laughs) this sequel's name is terror out of the sky again uh interesting title given I get, I get that bees fly, but I, I don't really think of them as coming in for attack uh, like fighter jets. But uh, 
Um, Terror Out of the Sky, it's 1978, two years later, and we have managed to lose the all but one member of the cast of the original one. Did you know that there was one cast member that was still there? The Bees. No, not the Bees. Um, Bruce French uh, continues as uh, one of the doctors, Eli Nathanson. Eli, the assistant or whatever at the Bee Sanctuary or whatever it was called. Right. He was in the first film. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, and even though uh, Jeannie Devereaux uh, continues on as a character into this film... She's not played by the same actress. No, she's she's recast. And that's what I didn't understand about this film. What's the point of even having her character and recasting her character? What's the point if you're going to introduce completely new characters all around her? So her uh, estranged ex-boyfriend who looked like was going to be current boyfriend is gone. She has a yes. relationship with some guy named Nick, played by Grizzly Adams. Yes. Dan Haggerty. Dan, Dan Haggerty. Yeah, in, in full beard. I mean, he is in full Grizzly Adams uh, mode. I mean, he's probably doing the series at this time. Right. Um, the head of the uh, the Beast Center or whatever is a completely different person. So what's the point of having, you know, the, the character that you can't even get the original actress for? <laughs> No, uh, yeah, because uh, not not that we were thoroughly following the exploits of of the characters from the first one with a lot of character development, but yeah, this they could have just came up with somebody else. It, 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 it's conceivable that the bees are back, or that they've gone on to continue to study the bees after they stopped them the first time. Whatever, but yeah, it didn't make any sense to actually insert one of the uh, the main one of the main characters from the first into this one, and then change the actress too. It just well, and they even went to the trouble of recreating moments of the climax of the previous film yeah. with the new actress. Yes, because I mean, because she's been terrified by this whole experience, so it. it while they kept picking on the fact that she is supposedly terrified by this experience, um, it didn't seem to stop her from anything. You really expected her little uh, PTSB, huh? Um, <laughs> you expected that wow. to play more of a role, and instead she just looks a little nervous and then goes ahead and does whatever she needs to do. Because they played it up like she was really still really bothered by it. Yet she still worked. Well, no, she didn't even in the original film. She didn't even work at the bee center. She was just a entomologist or something working somewhere else. So apparently she right. started working at the bee center. Odd place to work after being terrorized and practically suffocated by a swarm of bees. But okay, um, yeah. It this uh, actually entire sequel, it just didn't make much sense. And they effectively just told the same story over, including and coming down to, like, the same problem at the end. Instead of being trapped in a VW bug, she's trapped in a school bus with a bunch of kids. Yes. And, but this time it's in the middle of, like, the desert, so there's no way they can make it cold. And the yeah. solution for this one's even more wackadoo than the first one. 
I can't let this one go without bringing up my favorite part, though. Do tell. So, so our our one recurring actor and character, Eli, he's the first victim of the new ac- strain of Africanized bees. They now need to find what has happened to the... Uh, to the bees, because uh, they, they were sending some of their bees out to farms and such uh, for pollination purposes. And they discovered that it's very possible that they have sent out some of these Africanized bees out into the world. Mm-hmm. So they have to go and reclaim these bees so that they can be sure they got the queen and all that. Their colleague, their friend and colleague, is dead, not but a day when they start the, this search. And I get that. But the first thing that the the first little adventure they go on to go find the bees involves um, hunting down some kid who is about to mail a package out to the po- through the post office. And they need to intercept it. Mm-hmm. Efren Zimbalist Jr., our hero, um, Alfred Pennyworth himself, mm-hmm. um, a- and Jeannie here, Jeannie Devereaux, um, who we find out is uh, was a former student uh, of uh, David Martin, the, the hero. Um, they have raced to this. They've stopped the kid. They've gotten the package with the bees back. And she immediately announces after that, keep in mind, there's more bees out there that they need to go. Their friend is dead, not but hours before. And she's like, I think we need to take a break. Yeah, let's <laughs> sit by the lake. <laughs> so they do. They pull off by the water um, where David Martin, who is easily 20 years older than um, than Jeannie, um, professes that he has been in love with her the entire time. I like I keep going a friend of yours is dead. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're hunting bees that can kill the population. This is not the time. No, no, this is not the time to introduce a love triangle <laughs> with a creepy love triangle at that. Yeah, uh with the with the three people that are that stand between you know saving the the world <laughs> and being run by taken over by african bees you know i didn't even realize this the writer of this film and the previous film was this gordon trueblood uh, we covered one of his other films ants <laughs> so this is the third film from gordon trueblood that we've covered he likes his bugs. Well, apparently, we should actually. Some one of these days, we should do tarantulas the deadly cargo. There you go. <laughs> We're gonna have to just to get the whole True Blood sequence. Yeah. Out. <laughs> Shall we move? Yeah, on? Yeah, let's do. Let's see. Am I up? You're up. All righty. Well, we get to see another werewolf film in 1978's Death Moon, or as Tom uh, more appropriately called it. Werewolf in Paradise. <laughs> that would have been a fantastic title. It would have. I, I, I would have seen. I would have watched that all day long. 
Robert Foxworth is a uh, a businessman. Sometimes he he's having a hard time. He's he's struggling a lot of big he needs, he needs to stress. Relax. The doctor says he needs to relax, so he goes to a nice resort in Hawaii. But unfortunately for him, he's been cursed by a ancestor of his who uh, apparently uh, a missionary who tried to disrupt the island of you know own religious beliefs and he, mm-hmm. his ancestors destroyed their altar destroyed their altar and uh they cursed his ancestor with uh, this um affliction of turning into a wolf during the full moon and apparently it doesn't uh bring itself to full bear until he actually goes to the island where it all happened uh, i like robert foxworth i actually haven't seen him in anything good but I like him yeah. in what I've seen him in, which is really weird. He's just like like he's like the cool '70s guy for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, as they put him in the tightest shorts, oh, yeah, they, <laughs> they could conceive. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was women at the pool that had more more of a bikini on than uh, <laughs> or more of a swimsuit on than he did at one point. Yeah, uh, him and Joe Penny definitely needed. Pants. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't Joe Penny the the guy from Riptide? Yes. Yes. I it was bugging me, and I did I didn't bother to look it up right away. I'm like, that's the Riptide guy. I'm just I, just a little because he's so young in this one, right? And and all, but uh, I have to ask you a question. Sure, 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 uh, sure, sure. I'm putting it to you. This. How old is that priestess? Oh right. Uh, well, I. Well, had we spent more time with her, like we should have, maybe we would right. know the answer. I know, right? Uh, yeah, because we don't have a whole lot of explanation as to why why they why a werewolf curse, where that comes from, how does that have to do with anything with Polynesian. Um, <laughs> no, but we do know about the uh, guy who has stolen wax impressions of keys and is robbing people's rooms. Because Joe Penny's got to have a job in this film. Yeah, yeah. We spent way too much time with the B-plot on this film. Yes. Which ended up taking us nowhere other than just keeping Joe Penny in the film, like you said. I That's... The only reason he was there. But they didn't need it because this guy is werewolfing out and killing people. <laughs> I'm guessing the hotel detective would be involved in trying to find out who's killing people. You didn't need him going around chasing people because they're robbing people's uh, jewels. I, you just don't do that. Just, <laughs> you seriously you seriously don't have enough story to tell about the guy turning into a werewolf. You have to work in a freaking hotel thief and, and when is hotel security also basically a private dick <laughs> i don't know <laughs> uh but you know what uh, whatever <laughs> well he gets fired from this job and he goes and uh with two of his friends and buys a helicopter and uh <laughs> lives on a boat Paint, paints a silly face on the front of the helicopter yeah. <laughs> then there's barbara trentham she plays Diane May, the love interest of uh, Robert Foxworth. Yes. And I don't know if she's just supposed to be like 
super easy or what, but, uh, the, I mean, they're there for, what, a week? <laughs> They've met on, like, first day, and she is head over heels in love with them right up until he gets shot. Ben, uh, <laughs> Tom, it's Robert Foxworth. Well, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, not everybody can pull off pants like that, <laughs> but... But yeah, uh, we get to the the we get to the climactic scene at the end, and and this is just one of those train wreck endings that uh, that we have seen way too many times. But yes, he he wolfs out Joe Penny's on the on the scene. He's re- he's he's figured out who the wolf is, um, or that there is a wolf to begin with. Um, tracks him down to where they're staying for the night. He wolfs out and is about to terrorize her because she's the only one around. Um, He comes to save the day. He he shoots our wolf bad guy, for lack of better term, because actually he's the sympathetic character in all of this. He's the only one that doesn't seem to know what's going on. Um, And the the supposed instant love of his life just doesn't seem to care. <laughs> she's stunned. She's she's in shock. Sure. Well, I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> was this one of your favorite werewolf opponents? No, no, it was. It was not. I, I kept kind of like going. This could end. I mean, this was ninety minutes, and like of all the ones that we've watched, and some of them have only been a little over an hour. This is the right. one that I wish had been <laughs> one of those. Couldn't this one be a one hour and 13 minute yeah. like some of the other yeah, ones? This one, this one went on for a little too long and yeah. Ah, ooh, werewolf in the lie. Um. <laughs> Sh- shall we move on? Are you ready? I am so ready to move on. <laughs> to Moving on to another... It may be Werewolf. It's Scream of the Wolf from 1974, starring Peter Graves and Clint Walker. This is also directed by Dan Curtis. And it's a little bit of a different outing for Dan Curtis from what we've seen, I think. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a little more involved. I mean, we do have the... uh, the guy that's just a guy that does something that turns into the hero of the film, this time played by Peter Graves, and his Lego-like white hair. <laughs> Hi, I'm Peter I'm Graves. Peter Graves, and I hunt werewolves. <laughs> uh, I think the casting on this one was... Well, Peter Graves, I don't know. I can take or leave Peter Graves. I don't think he has quite the gravitas that he typically is needed for a lot of the roles that he does. Clint Walker, on the other hand, you mm-hmm. could not have gone, <laughs> you could not have done better. <laughs> he no. was fantastic as, as like the, 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 the hunter. great white hunter <laughs> of yes. the film. I kind of want to go back in time a little bit and pick him, uh, create a new Spider-Man movie and make him Craven, Craven the hunter. Yes. Yes. He'd be. Cause I, he, that's it. That was the guy. That was Craven right there. Yeah. Yeah. This one follows a, a, um, a lot of brutal murders going on. And I think they're actually in like in L.A., aren't they? They're in Southern California somewhere. They're Southern California, but they're in kind of boonies. Yeah. Kind of area. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, Peter Graves is investigating. He's a former hunter. And he starts mm-hmm. investigating. And the uh, the tracks and everything he finds is um, very curious. The dogs lose scent. It's like they just the scent just disappears or changes. And then they find tracks that seem to go from a four-legged animal to a two-legged animal to just disappears. It's very mm-hmm. mysterious. So he tries to recruit his old hunting friend, played by Clint Walker, to try to track this creature down. But uh, Clint isn't interested at all. In fact, he thinks it's really great that this is happening because it's making people feel alive because from the all the from the fear. I liked it just for Clint Walker's character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, I, I do want to like. I felt like we were led down a path. I mean, you wanted this to be a werewolf movie, but I have to say, if I really think about it, I'm kind of glad it wasn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, I like that. Yeah, this was a uh, Dan Curtis and another Richard Matheson. He he wrote this from. Um, he based it on a story by called The Hunter by David Case. Mm-hmm. And of, of the Matheson-Curtis uh, films we've seen recently, this is the one that kind of stands out as being a little different than all the others. I mean, this is the one that doesn't feel like it would be a Kolchak or it no. wasn't going to be a, uh, a Norless tape or anything like that. All the others easily can fit in those... I guess it depends on how you really want to come at it. I could see where people would be disappointed that it's relatively mundane and it's just, you know, Mr. Craven here. <laughs> right. Should be Craven the Hunter, who is, uh, what he, he took some uh, parts off of his trophies to make prints and he, you know, burnt them a little or did something else to him to make them a little bit more, even more mysterious. And, mm-hmm. I mean, he does the whole, like, Scooby-Doo explains how it all was done at the end. So I could see where... I could see where you might not like that and you would consider it a cop-out. But part of me, I don't know, I kind of like the fact that it's just... Only because of what was driving Clint Walker's character. He was... He was looking at people and thinking they were just becoming too soft and they they don't know how to live anymore. And he was like trying to give them their lives back. And and the people that were dying never felt more alive than right before they died. I I just I liked his mentality going into why he was doing what he was doing. Well, and and he was very much focused on his friend, Peter Graves character. Mm -hmm. Um, He 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 did as much as say that that's what this was for. He wanted to bring the hunter back out uh, of John here in this case. If they had just ended up hauling uh, Clint's character away, Byron, um, if they had just ended up hauling him away, I would have been deeply disappointed and, and saddened by this movie. It would have been a total letdown, but I think this entire movie was made to get to the ethical conundrum at the end for his friend. This is a guy that he did consider his friend and may have been involved in saving his life at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is faced with a choice in this moment, given what this guy has done to let him go 
or end him right then and there. Problem I have though. Yeah. John is there. He's got the he's got a revolver. Um what's a Clint Walker is a Byron the character there. Byron says, "Oh, that's not the type of person you are. You're not going to shoot me in the back." And he turns to walk away. And John does shoot him. Because he's saying, right. I, I, I don't have a choice. I can't let you, you know. What? But I'm thinking, well, actually, you do. You've murdered a man. You've shot a man in the back. You could let him go because you have the evidence. He's admitted what he's done. You've got the mm-hmm. evidence. You've got the guy's crazed dog, the corpse of his crazed dog lying there. You've got all the stuff in his house. You, you know what to look for now. You could go to the authorities. You could go to your friend, the police chief, or, or the detective, or whatever, the, the doing this case, and you could not be guilty of murdering a man by shooting him in the back. It's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, it, it was great for the story. It was great for the film, but it's one of those things that if you could see, like, the next day, <laughs> I'm sorry, John's going to jail. Well, in this case, uh, shooting him, in, if you remember, shooting him in the back didn't do the trick. He turned around, came at him, and he had to shoot him again. Well, but yeah. But that, all, that's, all, all that said, all of that said, um, and we might have needed somebody other than Peter Graves to pull this off. We needed to get the, more of that sense that his closest friend had just purposely tortured him. Mm-hmm for the past several days, weeks, um, all over this because his friend Byron wanted to make him a harder man. So this is him becoming the harder man. Yeah. All right. I don't know. But uh, it's the ethical conundrum that that, that kind of makes it a, more of a payoff for me okay. for this right. one. Well, you learned too late. Man's a feeling creature. <laughs> Alrighty, uh, we're we're getting down. Yeah, we're in the home stretch now. Yep, number twenty nine, Vampire from nineteen seventy nine. Kind of don't know what to say about this one. This is the story of we're kind of in modern day nineteen seventy nine. We're erecting a church in the area. Um, We've got kind of a land developer, architect kind of guy, and his happy wife. And all that, and they're given the opportunity to supposedly save some old artwork. Um, and somehow this... I, I kind of missed the part where the vampire actually made his entrance in, into this. But apparently it's all his stuff. Well, that, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that goes on before the events start happening in this film. And, we, we, and this is where I want to ask you... Is there a film before this one? No, there is not. It is all told just through the stories that that uh, E.G. Marshall's character uh, Harry tells. He was a he's an ex cop who who you know he had a beat back in the late thirties, early forties, or something like that. And they were he and his partner were tracking down you know trying to find someone who's been going around and and, and killing people. And apparently his partner discovers that the killer they're looking for is a vampire and apparently manages to track him down to his lair, which was in the basement of some building. The 
vampire, apparently, again, accord, all according to uh, Harry, rather than being uh, destroyed or anything, decided that he would just uh, kill the cop there in the basement and just bring the whole place down and bury him, figuring, you know, he'll survive and eventually get out, and the cop won't. That's all told just by investigations between uh, Harry and um, Jason, our, our, our lead uh, architect here. Yeah, it just, it, it felt like something I've seen. Mm. And, and this felt like this was supposed to be the continuation of a, a story we've already seen. Yeah, strangely enough, this was actually designed to be the beginning of a series. But it feels like and a sequel. It does. It feels like a sequel. And then, yes, it felt like this was supposed to go on, especially given the the non-ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, that uh, that this whole the whole sequence felt like I was coming in in the middle of something, and I didn't have enough. Be interesting to know. I I didn't even realize this until I was just looking at the uh, the wiki here. This was co-written and produced by Stephen Bochco. Oh no, I noticed the Stephen Bochco's name yeah. all over. Hill Street this, Blues, um, L.A. Law, uh, Doogie Howser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, and it definitely has that. It has that police procedural sort of feel to it, for sure. It, it, it does, especially using the gnarled old cop. E.G. Uh, Marshall was great in this. He was. Um, Richard Lynch is always kind of creepy. Uh, Interesting he, casting choice. Yes, yeah, so having him as Prince Anton, uh, our vampire, yeah. um, he already kind of has a look about him that he's kind of creepy anyway. I do have to say, like, out of the gate, once we get our our vampire, um, we've established that he is a vampire. He has that run through the city just as the uh, sun's coming up, and he doesn't have a car mm-hmm. to to take him to his, his crypt for the night. And he makes that mad dash, and they actually have smoke coming off I of him. I thought of you. <laughs> When I saw I that, knew I was that like, you would, oh, Tom will be happy. <laughs> I, it's a thing, okay? If, you, if, if, if vampires are going to burst into flames when they see sunlight, um, you got to have them tortured in some way. And I, it was subtle, but they, I thought they did a good job. And then they also, they actually made him look fairly strong. It, this is a weakened moment. And he is leaping from, like, fire escape to a fire escape. And I'm like, all right, uh, that's cool. <laughs> I thought they were going to go a different direction. They, the, they kept throwing a cross in his face, at least early on. They kept throwing crosses up on his, crucifixes up on his face. Mm-hmm. And he would have lines of, like, quit waving that piece of junk around. I thought they were going to go with, you know, that doesn't work on right. me. Or... Uh, there was another vampire film, and I don't know which one it was, but it was a case someone tried to put a crucifix in front of a, a, the vampire, and he kind of recoils at first, and then he just smiles, and he's like, that only works if you believe. I thought they were going <laughs> to go that route on this one. And they they didn't, because in the end, no. the crucifix does, down on it, yeah, yeah. does back them off, and they can use the crucifixes to... You know, keep his. Uh, they put crucifixes in his caskets so he can't use them. And of course, there's right. the sizzle and the smoke when they when they do so and everything. Um, so yeah, I was a little disappointed that that uh, 
there wasn't the route they they went with that or they they just seemed to oh they were just stepping up to that line but they just they didn't cross it this is a vampire with accumulated wealth over a period of long long period of time and all that and i don't know he he got for a vampire he's very petty <laughs> his, his stuff got pinched and and then someone tried to take him to jail as supposedly having stolen all of this stuff and so he holds this couple responsible for the whole thing and chooses to hang out so that he can torture them by murdering the one and then making the other guy the guy's life hell yeah, you're 700 years old or whatever wouldn't it if this happened wouldn't it be easier just to like oh screw it i'll go to another town right yeah i mean yeah you especially when if you think about it uh, Vampires are supposed to be all uh, um, scary and strong and and demons of the night, that whole thing. And with some of the ones that we've seen, they're all very fragile folk. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a, some cross sticks and some, some holy water and, and they can't manage to evade any of it. <laughs> is it. Is it me or did... I almost thought that uh, John, uh, oh, I think I was calling him Jason. Um, the character was John. The actor was uh, Jason Miller. Yes. I almost feel like Jason Miller would have been the better vampire. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing because he's got a look about him. He does. He's got a very, oh, unique facial structure. And the way he speaks is very, well, unique. It's, it's not a pretty face. Right, no, no. Um, and, and, and his stature is kind of weird unto itself. Uh, I, I don't like to pick on anybody that way. Uh, I'm not always a prize myself, but he just has this hulking presence about him, and I just thought it was funny. Like, he's got this gorgeous wife who's deeply in love with him. I'm like, it's a hard face to love like you do. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, he very well easily could have been the vampire instead. Yeah, no, I kind of like it. He's just, his look and the way he talked, occasionally the way he would speak, there was like a little bit of a, it felt like there was a little bit of an accent. It was almost mm -hmm. like a, um, it's an accent that maybe he has lost. Like he came to America when he was extremely young. I don't know the history of the actor. Um, right. But that's the sort of accent that I kept. It's just, you would just, pick up every now and again the way he spoke some of his lines gave me almost a, a Raul Julia kind of feel yes, uh, yes particularly yes. when uh, E.G. Marshall is trying to I think it's uh, yeah I think it's Harry trying to or maybe one of his other friends or something and it's after his um, John Rollins' wife has been murdered when we were kids we used to talk about that tropical paradise someplace you remember yeah Quite some paradise we ended up on. I got two tickets, John. Let's get out of here. Take a week, a month, anything you need. He killed her and mutilated her and nothing is being done about it. John, we've been through this. The cops have been over every inch of him. He never left his apartment that night. He had witnesses, including Nicole. She's a liar. The, the funny thing is... Uh, um. I went to I went to look up to see uh, where where he was a from originally. Yeah. 
He's from New York City. Yeah. Queens. Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't know. But maybe his parents... I mean, that's what I'm saying. It, it, if either I'm imagining it or the accent comes through, I'm thinking maybe his parents were, you know, maybe he's only a uh, second generation and maybe he grew up with, you know, an accent in the household or something like that. Really don't know. I just It could be my complete imagination. Oh, I know. Um, but yeah, no, since this was supposed to maybe carry on, again, given the in- ending, um, who knows, maybe he could have become um, a fellow vampire. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would have watched a series with E.G. Marshall tracking down vampires. <laughs> it's totally on board. <laughs> that would have been cool. Um, I, did, uh, I, I did get some more Jessica Walter in this. So she was the... Uh, what what what's uh what was uh Dracula's little minion guy? Um Oh I don't recall. Renfeld? Yeah. She was oh that's right. Oh she was the um She Yeah She was his Renfeld. Yeah, she, she was the guy she was the woman that protected him during the day by either leading people away or giving them things to do right. that would somehow benefit him in some way. For instance, like unearthing all of his worldly possessions so that he could take ownership again well let's leave vampire behind yes down to our last two films night 30 dead of night from 1977 is another uh trilogy of anthology films Mm -hmm. i liked this one a lot i did i did i didn't love trilogy of terror like I was kind of hoping I would. This this one I like. There is not a story in here that I didn't like. I thought this was was great. Uh, the first story, not all of them are like horror. No. Uh, in fact, the first story is really, it's it's I don't know what you would call it. It's just a very pleasant little story. It's called Second Chance. It stars Ed Begley Jr. Yes, a very young Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> yes. It was a man who restores automobiles and restores this, uh, I believe, a fictional car. I had never heard of a Jordan Playboy. No. Um, And while taking it for a drive after completing it, he suddenly finds himself back in time in like the 1950s in this small town where the car is then stolen. And he goes to sleep that night just on a doorstep. And when he wakes up, he's back in his old time. As it turns out, he um, it goes forward, you know, uh, several months or years later or whatever, and he's now involved he's in a relationship with this woman. She goes to meet her uh, parents, and it turns out her grandparents. Grandparents, as it turns mm-hmm. out, her grandfather owns a Jordan Playboy, and as it turns out, it's the exact same car. So the mm-hmm. events that led him or led the um, I, I missed. Uh, describing the part in the beginning where he buys this thing that's been wrecked. This car has been wrecked and been sitting in a barn for 50 years because it was involved in a train wreck that killed the the passengers. Exactly. Some young kids tried to run race the train and didn't make it and was clipped by the train and flipped and, and killed. And so him going back in time and delaying this young man who stole, who quote unquote stole this guy's car for just a split second stopped him from racing that train and he lived and then 
eventually had a granddaughter that he would now marry. It's like, this is just a really cute story. This is like an amazing story. Yes, uh, that's entirely what I thought. And like, I'm, I'm watching amazing stories again. Um, it had that feel. But yes, uh, I think they were going for more of a out of body experience, ethereal kind of thing, rather than a straight up time travel. Because, I mean, he was there, but he wasn't mm-hmm. kind of thing. Because if you recall, um, the couple don't actually recall being stopped. Right. No, exactly. And in yeah, the only <clears throat> couple have no idea what he's talking about. So, well, and he even says that, oh, that guy stole my car, and the the another couple come up to him like, oh, are you sure that was your car? Because it sure looked like that guy's car. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he wasn't sort of really there, but he was. It was just a nice little kind of heartwarming story that I really liked. It's- it's almost like he's the re- a reverse ghost. Mm-hmm. Like he's alive, but his spirit went back and somehow saved them. Right. And I'll just say this: every time the story started, I was positive I knew how it was going to end, and I was wrong every time. <laughs> <laughs> I thought when this one started. I thought, oh, he's going to meet someone back in time. They're going to be driving along. He's the one that's going to try to race the train. And it's going to be a repeating time loop sort of thing. Right. But I was wrong, and I was very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yes, no, that, that one was nice. And then, so how did you feel about story number two? No such thing as a vampire. I like the fact that they literally, it, it is what it says on the tin. <laughs> Right. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it it's so on the nose, and you don't get that it's so on the nose until the until end. the end. I like this one. Uh, I'll just read it right here from the uh, the wiki pages. It, it sums it up really just fine. A woman who seems to be actively terrorized by a vampire, and her husband who attempts to deal with the the her terror by engaging the services of a friend who was a uh, a doctor. And they're investigating, and they're trying to figure it out. And yes, it is. it turns out, Patrick McNee, who plays her husband, is actually like using a syringe mm-hmm. <laughs> to pull blood from uh, from her, <laughs> all to uh, get her get his friend. Don't leave out the part. Uh, I I think ultimately it's his wife was sleeping with his friend. Mm. There was an affair there. Oh, okay. And this is his elaborate concoction to get him back and and, and not be the actual causes of his death. Yeah. Yeah, it was um yeah, it was k- twisted and fun. Yes, no. It, I mean, it it played on all of the lore um and it wasn't real. Yeah. Um, and of course, Patrick McNee, who I'm a huge fan of, so I will watch him do anything. And then a, a added bonus, Elisha Cook Jr. shows up as the butler. He's always fun yes. to watch. Mm-hmm. And I haven't mentioned, he's popped up in a couple films now. Horst Bushels? I don't, I'm not sure on the pronunciation of his, of his last name. Oh yeah, no, he's been like in a ton of the stuff that we've been watching. Yeah, I, he... he popped up the first time he popped up and I was wondering he looked he seemed really familiar to me and I know him best from um the Magnificent Seven 
Okay. The original Magnificent Seven film. He's kind of like the hothead kid, the, the the youngest of the of the seven that gets uh, hired to uh, to defend the, the the small town. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, he was also with us in the Savage Bees. Yes, thank you. He was the uh, the expert that gets the uh, the super spacesuit to try to uh, attract the bees and stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, the third segment here is called Bobby. Now, this one, I think, has a lot, is very familiar with Trilogy of Terror, the final story of Trilogy of Terror. It has a very, yeah, it's, it's kind of take that and the monkey paw and smash it together, <laughs> and you, you'll get Bobby here. Uh, a, a grieving mother goes to the, uh, grieving mother, uh, her uh, son has apparently drowned, and she keeps emphasizing on accident, it was, it was on accident. Yes. She's completely desperate, and she goes to the Black Arts to actually try to summon the, the, the demons of the netherworld to bring her son back to her, which appears to work, mm-hmm. but not exactly the way she planned it. <laughs> no. Uh, this one was chilling and creepy, and yeah, this one was pretty disturbing. And, and once again, you got to get... You got to give it to the kid. Oh, uh, yeah. Kids are creepy. That, yeah. Period. Let's just say Lee it. Montgomery plays Bobby, um, and he it very effectively goes from um, victim on the doorstep, sobbing his eyes out, trying to get this woman to understand that he has just been missing. He's not dead. He's home. Please take me in, Mommy right up until she tries to take care of him and he starts to turn. Mm-hmm. And when he turns, he goes all the way. <laughs> and he is the creepiest damn kid. Yeah. Where whereas the first story felt like an amazing story, uh-huh. this was Tales of the Dark Side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and not any not the lighter fare like more modern outer Day Outer Limits or Twilight Zone, no. or or tale something goofy like Tales from the Crypt. No, this is Tales of the Dark Side. This is straight up dark. <laughs> no, this was fun. I really enjoyed this one. I you know going into the anthology again after kind of being disappointed with Trilogy of Terror, I was a little like, mm, wonder what this one's going to be like. I still like Trilogy of Terror, but I did like this one a lot more. This one, yeah, this one hit everything. Because, like you said, it took all the tropes and it turned them a little on their head. And then when it did go with the trope, like the one at the end, they went all in and <laughs> and it was effective. Right. So. Yep, very no. good. Nope, very good. I, I strongly recommend people check out Dead of Night. Absolutely. So shall we? Yep, this is it. This is it, folks. Night 31. Night 31, we have Crowhaven Farm. And I'm going to tell you, folks, we've already seen this movie. <laughs> it's a little... We watched this one last time. This was Bay Cove again. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Effectively. This is... This is couple gets... A, a, a nice place in, in a quiet area. Um, and it happens to be uh, infested with witches. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I describe this one as a soap opera-like drama with witches and uh-huh. reincarnated souls. I said it's not bad and appropriately creepy and, and inappropriately creepy when it comes to young Jennifer. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is the... For everything that we were creeped out by with the uh, the photography teacher... Uh, yeah, it's kind of flipped around, and it's... <laughs> it, it, yeah, you don't usually see... Now, granted, she's supposed to be an older soul than she is in her body. Yes. But we are essentially watching an 11-year-old girl hit on a grown man. Yes, and the grown man is completely oblivious to it because he should be because she's an 11 year old girl <laughs> right there there's a hint there and it's kudos to the actor because i actually got to give him credit in the scene where she first openly hits on him there's a look in his eye there there's a look in his eye like that ain't right mm. <laughs> um but he takes the high road, and because this is also supposed to be a girl through some trauma, so he takes the high road and goes, "It's all good. I love you too. We're glad you're we're glad you're in our life." Right. Just going to uh, ignore you and yeah. read my papers. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to do the proper daddy figure kind of role. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which I'm glad they also went in that role because this could have gone all sorts of sideways. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a really surprising for a 1970, uh, which and it the, felt very late 1960s. <laughs> it it could have gone all Amityville horror on you at some point, um, where where you have the borderline incestuous relationship going on. So, granted, this one precedes Bay Cove by. Tw- 20 years mm-hmm. because we had seen it before and it was kind of dull. Yeah. This is another one where I can't say I disliked it, but it's yeah. not something I would say, Oh, you, you need to rush out and watch this one. No, I mean, yeah, it's not terrible. It, it's clever. And it gives, uh, it gives, uh, the ethical conundrum again at the end, our heroine who, but clearly has escaped this fate once before from the witches um, is once again given a choice to escape it again and she chooses self-preservation mm-hmm. again um, which means it has to cost the life of somebody else and it just so happens to be hubby yeah <laughs> hubby wasn't exactly a peach himself though. oh no his ridiculous um uh, jealousy and everything that was constantly just just below the surface at every moment. I, I'm I'm amazed he even let the mailman come to the house and deliver a package. Right. I mean, yeah, that's that kind of jealousy. And, and it probably typical, um, at least a typical stereotype for the day. Yeah. That yeah, this is the that, kind of guy that if he was out with his wife and they go to a restaurant and the waiter said. Okay, thanks. You know, hands hands the bill, or you know, says okay, thanks for coming. And she says, and she would say thank you. This guy would go off, right? And, and to that, that's where some of this was harder to watch because I mean, it really played to to straight up stereotypes, yeah. and it was a little, it needed some more nuance than that yeah. because 
the the supposed guy that he was most jealous of was actually straight up creepy himself. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. Not to say that Kevin wasn't <laughs> way out of line at every moment. Right, but this is the that circumstance where uh Maggie, our our heroine, she wasn't into Kevin at all. No. She she's repulsed by it. Like she's trying to be friendly, um, trying to be neighborly, but she ain't into him. <laughs> but yes, this has all like you were saying. This is a soap opera that happens to involve some witches. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. This is something that would show up in like you know days of our lives or something like that, and it's all like condensed down into just seventy four minutes. You know what? This has probably been in days of. <laughs> <laughs> some of those soap operas uh, really reach so uh they may have found inspiration yeah it's here. it's witches so it could easily be dark shadows or there was another one that was um it, it was a failed i don't remember what it was called there was they did they tried to do another supernatural east kind of soap opera not that long ago well i say not that long ago it was probably 30 <laughs> years ago but right hey everything's uh relative <laughs> Was kind of hoping for a little bit more for our last one. Yeah, we, it, we ended on kind of, uh, we kind of petered out <laughs> on the end. It's kind of like a, again, uh, it wasn't as vile as some of the things <laughs> that we have watched. But, but it sure, it sure was, it was kind of like a. <laughs> uh, but hey, John Carradine. John Carradine shows up, yeah. I, w- I will say, though, I mean, we, we talk about. Um, it not being that great and everything, but the highlight of the film, I think, is sort of the uh, the ability of the actress uh, played Jennifer, this Lisa Eilbacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was really good. I mean, she was she she was the sweet girl, and easily and also the really uncomfortable, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to hit on your husband girl and the evil. I'm going to kill you. And if you don't give me your husband girl. Yeah. She did all the parts really well. In fact, this whole series uh, defies the old trope that uh, um, you don't work with children or animals. Uh, the children characters in uh, much of what we've seen are usually the better ones. <laughs> So that wraps it up. That's our 31 nights of Halloween. It has been a marathon. I mean, I feel like whew, I need to like sleep for a month now. I, we both kind of celebrated the the other day as we finished out. Yes. So I think you know this year it just because the movies we didn't we didn't group them purposely group them in any kind of order. Uh, we, right. we chose them basically just by title alone and mm-hmm. maybe, uh, oh, because it this one has this particular celebrity in it, that'd be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we read a brief synopsis and we decided, you know, okay, that sounds good. But we didn't really go into like, okay, let's watch this one and we'll group it with this one, we'll pair it. And so we end up with kind of an eclectic batch and... Mm-hmm. There was a it, it was a roller coaster, and I think that's what kind of makes it um, exhausting by the end of the month compared to like last year. It's exhausting, but you know what? Uh, I would not have done it 
Um, I love that we stuck with our theme of the made-for-TV, and I, as I explain uh, what we have been doing to f- friends and neighbors and such, uh, I have to explain. We live in the era of streaming services now. Everything's a made-for-TV movie now. Right. But the level of uh, production has changed for what constitutes a, a made-for-TV. So... We set out to actually pick out the traditional made-for-TV movies. It's part of what we've been doing all year. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to incorporate it into our 31 Nights of Halloween has been a lot of fun because there are some good ones in here, too. Yeah, and we did exactly what we hoped would happen is we found some gems. Yes. Many of them uh, were it- exactly how we expected them to be. <laughs> Yes, but even in those, it's hard not to find that moment that just like like terror out of the sky where I am just marveling at the fact that we're going to take a break in the middle of all of the tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to find at least that moment in some of these films that just make you laugh no matter what. Oh, like there, there's there's fun in the absurd. So the first 15 films that we watched, we felt the Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, which was the first film we watched this month, was definitely the best, our favorite of the first 15. What would you say would be your favorite out of these last 16? Um, I'm going to go with Don't Go to Sleep. I think I'm going to go. I I, kind of have to agree with you. Because, I mean, especially since... The point of this was for like horror for Halloween. Yeah. Um, d- Don't go to sleep was just straight up. Um, it it seemed so benign at first, and it just went super dark at the end. And the girls were so effective. And I I just yeah that was the one that kind of made me go mm, that was that was cool. Yeah, I I think. Oh. Um, are you in the house alone? Would be had we not been doing a Halloween theme, right? Uh, that that would definitely would end up high on on a, just a on oh I watched made for TV movies that would end up high on the list. But since we were kind of looking for a Halloween theme, that I, I I agree we we needed something that was that was a horror, and that one definitely fit the bill. So mm-hmm. I I think we have to ask though out of the thirty one films. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and Don't Go to Sleep. Which one would you put on top? Ooh, ouch. Yeah, I know. I, I, That's I'm, tough. I'm asking the question, and I'm not sure. Oh, God. Um, I'm still going Don't Go to Sleep. Oh, okay, really. I was actually thinking Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is going to edge it out just a little. I For, for, for overall production... Um, and some of the cleverness of it, um, I would grant you, but those girls and, and just how the Scarecrow one is an environment. Uh, it's great film. It's got great production, great, great acting, great storytelling. But that's not my life. Mm. I can't put myself in that environment. This family could very easily have been yours and my family. And so it strikes a little okay. deeper. Right. So I'm going from the perspective of Halloween and something that might scare me. This is the one. All right. All right. I think 
that's where my- why I give Dark Knight just the slightest bit of an edge, I think, is just because of the fun factor. Which ones mm-hmm. do I watch and which, which of these two do I watch and do I actually have fun watching? Mm-hmm. And I, I, that to me is kind of, I like being scared. I like a good creepy movie and everything like that, but I also like having fun watching a movie. And so Dark sure. Knight of the Scarecrow for me, just, it, it just edges it out just, just a bit, just on the fun factor. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Just in, in this one moment, if you ask, you're asking the question. So I'm going with the, yeah, don't go to sleep. Is there a, uh, the worst? Should we ask? Oh, God. Well, here, let me go through my notes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing the same. I know we hit some really stinkers in the first half. Yeah, there were there were some ones where I'm like, oh god, how long is this month gonna be? Howling in the Woods still tops it for me, I think. That one's rough. Um, god, so many. It that's it's a it's a toss up between Screaming Woman and uh, Howling in the Woods, I think. See, I'm gonna give it to Barbara Eden for being in the one. So yeah, the the screaming woman just uh, I just couldn't get into it at all. Yeah, it was it 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 was just boring. Right. Uh, let's that's really the the heart and soul of it is it was boring. Whatever direction they were trying to go, it it just failed. And I think we both agree that the most fun we had watching any of these was still invitation to hell yes yes <laughs> absolutely yes i can't yes <laughs> like i can see myself just i'm just gonna watch that again that, that may turn into a like yearly october watch <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think so you think we could get susan lucci to come on <laughs> We'll give her an Emmy. <laughs> we can't give you an Emmy. We'll give you a timey. <laughs> a timey wimey. Uh, no, uh, yeah, that one's just so much fun. Yep. And, as, and that's what I'm getting at is that was a Wes Craven movie, too. Yeah. So so what was the last one? That I've, I've already forgotten which one was his. Summer of... Was that Summer of Fear? Summer of Fear, yes. Yeah. Yeah, those are not the same. <laughs> no, very different films. Absolutely. But, hey, they're a decade apart, too. Yeah. No, it, so. has, been, it, it has been a fun month. Um, it has. I, I've really enjoyed it. I've had a good time. It's been fun. I mean, every, walking into these films, and you don't know what you're going to get when you sit down to watch them. And that just... It just adds to the enjoyment because so many of them have been first-time watches. Well, right, because a uh, good hunk of them, uh, <laughs> we would have been so young. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, honestly, most of them I didn't know existed until we we found them on the list. And, and that is truly the fun of what we do. Just straight up on this podcast, all, all the way around, it, it's finding those things that not everybody is familiar with. We give them a shot and we shake them down. Um, we find the gems when they're there. We pan the the terrible ones <laughs> when they're there too. 
Well, that is going to do it for the 31 days of Halloween. And I think for the most part, that is going to do it for our made-for-TV movies. We're going to, we, since we've done so many of them, we're going to jump back into our MST3K Unrift for a couple episodes. We're going to go ahead and kind of start wrapping that up as well. Our next episode is going to be the MST3K The Movie, uh, This Island Earth. And then, uh, which I I think we're going to, I think I know which side of the fence we might fall on that one. (laughs) And then after that, we're going to watch the film that was the subject of the final Mystery Science Theater, uh, Danger Diabolic. This will also be the first time I watch either. Really? Yes, because uh, as we've discussed in previous, um, when Mystery Science Theater started getting to its final season on sci-fi, I was starting to lose connection with it from its scheduling so you, changes. And you never watched the film? You never went and saw the uh, MST3K, the movie? No, we... Uh, you and I. That's what I thought. That That's one. what I thought. Yeah. No, no, no. But no, Danger, oh, Diabolique, yeah. or however, I've never seen the film and I've never seen the Mystery Oh, Science I see theater. what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. I've seen the MST. I've never seen it on Rift. So. Right. So uh, I, I get to watch it twice. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it's a good one, folks. <laughs> I'll admit, I'm, I'm looking forward to taking a break from the made for TV movies. <laughs> Mm. I'd say we earned it. Yes. And I am looking forward to like maybe not knowing what I'm going to watch <laughs> for a change. As we have both exchanged in Texas like I'm now lost. I don't <laughs> I don't know what to watch next. Maybe I should read. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should see the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is going long. We need to cut, bring it to a close. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you had a good time, and, and uh, I hope you check some of these films out. Even, yes, even Even the bad ones can be a lot of fun in the right environment. So, yeah, look them up. They're all easy to find. Until next time, bye, everybody. See ya. See ya.